0: You know, growing up in my house, my dad is a music minister. I have told this story before in a different context, but uh, he was meticulous about certain things that had to do with the church and things that had to do with Sunday morning. And uh, he would, he had a staff, and they would, you know, set up for Sunday and get things prepared. Um, He had a choir and an orchestra and a music team and a band and have to get all the microphones coordinated and get it all set up and and ready to go. But undoubtedly, even though all those people were there to get all that done, he would still go up on Saturdays to check it all, to make sure it was still there. Because undoubtedly, as is the case with anything, especially church, something will change between Friday and Sunday, something will happen, somebody will go up there, something will be removed, or there will some, be a microphone and cord, or some crazy thing will just go missing, and you show up Sunday morning, and it's not there to, to you know, help the service function. And so he would go up on Saturday, just check everything, uh, and sometimes he would take me with him, and we'd go up there and check it all, make sure the microphones were where they needed to be, and uh, make sure the, you know, all the, the choir chairs were the proper distance... Apart from maybe that's where I got it. Maybe you gotta have the proper distance apart so everything's just set just right. But um, we'd go up there and check it all. And uh, I can distinctly remember this one time. Um, at the time, they were the, the the church was building a sanctuary, and uh, they had the double gym where they were meeting for for services. And uh, they, there was a little place where the choir was, where the choir mics were at the base. You couldn't really see the base of the choir mics from. The congregation—they couldn't see a, that, where that was—and but he had me go up there and with each one of the choir mics that were set up, uh, make sure all of the cords were nice and neat and in a little circle at the base of the choir mic stand. And uh, I was working on it, and at the, you know, at the time I wasn't, you know, very good at rolling cords and wanted to get done as fast as possible. And they were all twisted and funky and in all kinds of different ways. It's kind of like trying to roll up an extension cord and leave it in your shed. You don't want to be it, do it terribly because the next time you come in there, you get really frustrated because the thing's tangled. And so I was getting frustrated, and it was all over, and I was just leaving them all. I mean, there were like seven of them, just leaving them all the way they were. And he came over and told me to redo it. And I remember saying, but, Dad, nobody can see this. I mean, even the people who the mic is right in front of their chair, I mean, the, the cord is under the chair, they, they can't even see it. So nobody's going to even know. And he goes, well, I will know, and the Lord will know. And you're not doing it for the person in the chair. You're not doing it for the person in the room. You're doing it for the Lord. He's the one that's going to know, so you've got to do your best for him. You see, what dad, I didn't even realize it at the time, but what he was showing me was a principle. He didn't necessarily tell me how to do it, you know, the proper technique and all of this, but he was teaching me the principle that you're doing it for the Lord whether anybody can see it or not. And that's a principle that can be carried on throughout your life. Even here at the church, you you can't see them. But in the ceiling tiles behind the sanctuary, there are a bunch of cords for video cords and power that that are running to different things all over the place. And there are her uh, nice and neat little circles in the ceiling tiles back there. Uh, Unless somebody has gone up there and messed up my circles, and I will find you because that will drive me... I'm going to check them this week. Now it's in my mind. I can't think of anything else. It's there. But... Uh, that the principle is that you're doing it for the Lord whether anybody can see it or not because it doesn't matter whether somebody else can see it and so the process there is making a better decision in my life he was teaching me as a kid was, has nothing to do really with the proper technique in rolling a microphone cord but had everything to do with understanding that it was being done for the Lord that it was being done for the Lord because then that would translate into every other part of my life do it for the Lord whether anybody sees it or not. And so that's how you make better decisions. If you teach somebody the principle behind it, the why behind it, then that will change the entire dynamic of how they do it, of really, if it gets done at all. If you teach your kid, there's a reason we take the trash out. And so we don't have trash, we're not stepping through trash to get to the kitchen sink. There's a reason there. We've got to take it out. It's, it's disgusting and gross and smelly, especially when you have a kid in diapers. You've got to take the trash out. There's a reason behind it. You've got to teach the principle, and that will help you make better decisions. And now, Jesus, throughout his ministry, tried to do this with his disciples. He would kind of show them how to do something. Like there was an instance they, they asked him, how, how do we pray? And he taught them kind of a step by step process of how to pray, and that's where we get the Lord's Prayer from. But he taught them the principles, uh, the why behind what they were doing almost every single time because he wanted them to understand uh, you need to have the motivation there, otherwise how you do it isn't going to stick. It's only going to stick if you have the motivation behind it. The motivation is almost like the, the root system that keeps it grounded within you and you can't remove it. And so Jesus went through this whole process in his teaching, in his demonstrating, uh, trying to get his disciples to be better decision makers, uh, uh, to help them in that process. Because I don't know if you've ever read the Gospels. The disciples were not very good at making decisions. Uh, they made poor decisions over and over and over again, and Jesus, in his patience, would guide them and, and walk with them through that. Well, we're going to look today in, in John chapter 6, then in verse 14, at a, at a very interesting section of Scripture that many of you have read before. Some of you, even if you've never read the Bible before, what this, the, the experience we're going to read about, you've heard about. Whether you know Jesus or God or not, undoubtedly you've heard about this section we're going to read. But there's a verse in there that I know I have passed over as a transition verse that not really taken much meaning behind it, but has such profound meaning in it. John chapter 6, it's on page 891 if you're using a Bible in the pew rack. It'll also be on the screens uh, as well. Uh, John chapter 6, so Jesus, as we saw last week, has just fed the 5,000. Uh, they, they brought him the little boy's food, and Jesus multiplied it, and he fed all these people from this. And the disciples are amazed at this. And, and each one of the disciples collected a basket full of food, and they took it with them. From what we can tell, it doesn't exactly say, but it's implied that they they did that. Um, And then we get verse uh, 14 of John chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed a prophet who has come into the world. And so Jesus has done the miracle, feeding the 5,000, most likely 10,000 plus people. And they're amazed. They said, This is the prophet who's coming. This is from a prophecy uh, that, that Moses spoke in Deuteronomy chapter 18 he spoke about a prophet who was coming, who would be like Moses, who would lead the people out of bondage in the same way that uh, uh, Moses led the people out of Egypt. And so they said, this is that prophet who is coming. This is the one. This is the one who's going to lead us out of the bondage. But they took it to mean like physical bondage, similar to how the, the Israelites were led out of physical bondage in Egypt. And so the... the these people in this crowd who are saying he's coming, he's fulfilling the prophecy. They're thinking he's going to lead us out of the uh, uh, bondage, is what they would consider it, of the Roman government. He would, he's going to free us from the Roman government. The bondage, though, is bondage of sin, is eternal bondage. It's ultimately, his kingdom would settle and, and uh, be an eternal kingdom, but they misinterpreted that passage. And so they, they think he's going to be this, this Messiah, who he is, but how he's going to do it is different than they perceive verse 15 perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself now we learn from uh, some of the other passages about this particular instance uh, both in uh, matthew uh, 14 and mark chapter 6 that jesus has already dismissed his disciples and so when Jesus, this verse, when he perceives that they're going to take him and make him king, his disciples aren't there. Jesus has already made them go down to the, to the Sea of Galilee, get in the boat, and leave the area. And then what those other passages tell us is that Jesus then dismissed the crowd by himself. But what I find interesting here in this verse is that Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. So somehow... It doesn't say somehow Jesus dismissed everybody, even though they were wanting to come and take him by force to be king. Jesus was able to subdue that desire and then withdraw from them before they were able to realize what they wanted or, or fulfill their desires. He withdrew to the mountain to pray, and so everybody's dismissed. The disciples are out on the sea. Verse sixteen. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across to Capernaum. It was dark. Jesus had not yet come to them, and we we learn from the other gospels as well. The disciples trying to get to the other side, and uh, the wind whips up, and they're rowing. They're not sailing across because they're fighting the wind, and so they row and row and row. And uh, one of the gospels tells us they row for hours. They're rowing for hours, and I don't know if you've ever rowed. Maybe you've rowed a canoe or or a kayak. This is a, a fishing boat. I mean, it's a pretty good sized boat, and it's big enough to hold 12 guys. You know, and they're not small people, right? And, and they're rowing this themselves across this water. And it says they're having such a tough time that having rowed for hours and hours, they're only able to get halfway across the sea. So they're only halfway across. And a storm kip, kicks up. Verse 18 The sea became rough because it was a strong wind blowing. Uh, verse 19, when they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea coming near the boat, and they were frightened. So Jesus is walking on water. He's walking on water out to them. Now, having heard this story many, many times and seen this displayed or, or, or heard people talk about it in not only church but in uh, uh, pop culture you know, we have context for this and understand, okay, he's walking on water. But for them, they've never heard of anybody walking on water before. It had never happened before. No one had ever walked on water that they were aware of. This was a completely new concept. And so in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the night, rowing, they see somebody coming towards them on top of the water. And they're three or four miles out in the middle of the water. And it says they were frightened. I tend to think that's an understatement. If this were you, and you're in the middle of a storm, the, the clouds and the rain and the wind and the lightning, and you're just doing everything you can to survive, and all of a sudden you see, a, a, you think as a person, the lightning cracks, and whoa, there's somebody right there. You'd be a little scared, yeah? Yes. They are out of their mind frightened. They're in this little boat, and and they don't know what is going on. And Jesus, it says here in in John, uh, verse 20, He said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Recognizing his voice, It is I, do not be afraid. Verse 21, Then they were glad to take him into the boat. Of course, it's Jesus, bring him into the boat. They're glad to take him in the boat. Immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So we get another miracle there in just verse 21, just something real offhanded John writes. Jesus steps into the boat, and it says immediately they were at the land they were going. So only being about three, three and a half, four miles across, now all of a sudden, instantly they go the rest of the way. They're instantly, Jesus steps in the boat, storm calms, they're at the land. Jesus gets them there across. Now, what's interesting is I had never heard before in, in doing some research on this is that this entire experience is fulfilled prophecy from the book of Psalms. Psalm 107 verse 28 They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven which was where they were going the other side of the sea. He brought them there quickly and immediately even though Jesus had sent them into the boat. He had sent them across the sea. They had obeyed him by getting into the boat and crossing the water. And honestly, they had obeyed Jesus by going into the storm, even though they didn't know the storm was coming. They were crossing with him. They obeyed with him. But I couldn't help but think, if you go back up to verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. What would have been the disciples' response if they had been present with the crowd of 5,000 plus when they wanted to start really a revolutionary war for for independence with Jesus as the figurehead? I mean, opportunity and overwhelming support were right there. The people wanted to make him king. This massive force. I mean, this is an army. If there's just 5,000 men, I mean, that's a lot of people to go and fight to make him king. And they were wanting this. They were, I mean, that was the political persuasion of the crowd. One of Jesus' own disciples is called Simon the Zealot because that was his own desire as well, to overthrow the government. And so we don't know why, what the disciples would have thought. I mean, the other gospels tell us Jesus has already sent them away before he does, uh, goes up onto the mountain. And so if they, maybe he sent them away because he knew what their reaction would have been. It would not have been very good, but he sent them away because knowing that opportunity and and the overwhelming support he had there, they are not necessarily signs of God's will. Even though sometimes we think it that way, think, I've got opportunity, I've got overwhelming support, it has to be God's will, right? Not always. Not always. I mean, there was opportunity to be king. Overwhelming support of the crowd would have had undoubtedly the support of his disciples. But that was not God's will Because think about it They were going to take him and make him king So could he have seized his kingdom Ahead of time without the cross It would have been a different kingdom It wouldn't have been The kingdom that God Had sent him to bring It would have been a kingdom But not the kingdom A kingdom is not the same as the kingdom A kingdom is quicker and easier And And Uh, uh, more immediate but the kingdom is stronger and lasts far longer not every opportunity or seeming open door is from God sometimes we jump the gun in trying to do what we want rather than what God wants and this is all about scripture Abraham did this when waiting for God to, to reveal what God wanted him to do next Abraham had an encounter with Hagar after he was what, like, it was something like 17 years into the promise or something, in, into the waiting. Um, maybe, even, maybe a little shorter than that. But he, he was in the waiting and he got tired of waiting on God. He had an opportunity, he had support from his wife, and so he took another wife, Hagar, and had a son named Ishmael and caused all kinds of problems that are still going on even this week in Israel as a result of that very thing because he didn't wait on God. He had opportunity and he had support, but it wasn't God's will. Opportunity and support do not necessarily mean it is God's will. God's plan must be followed, must be followed. The disciples were sent to the boat, obeyed and went into the storm. It was not God's will for Jesus to take his kingdom at this point. It was not God's will for Jesus to, to listen to the crowd and go and and be an earthly king in the way they wanted him to at this point. And so Jesus, knowing this, withdrew to the mountain to pray. He got out of there. God's plan has to be followed, even if it's difficult, even if it flies in the face of what people think is rational or makes sense. It has to be followed. And it can only be followed from hearing the voice of God from Scripture and prayer and until God gives us a new thing to do, we, we have to keep doing the last thing he told us to do until he tells us something new. Because otherwise, we're creating what God wants us to do rather than listening to what God wants us to do. If we get tired of waiting, we create a situation like Abraham and Hagar that creates problems for millennia. Or if Jesus would have listened to the crowd here, it would have created all kinds of problems and there would have been no salvation for the world. But Jesus knew God's will, and he was not about to disobey God's will. He listened to the Lord. He remained steadfast, which is what we have to do. We have to remain steadfast and obey what God says. Otherwise, honestly, we're just dogs distracted by squirrels. We see an opportunity here, we jump and seize it. We see an opportunity here, we jump and seize it. We see an opportunity here, we jump and seize it. And we miss what God had for us the whole time. Because opportunity is not the same as obedience. Opportunity is not the same as obedience. Just because you have an opportunity does not mean God put it in front of you. It may be there from the enemy. Or maybe God's just saying, wait, I've got something better. Or wait, I've got, an, uh, 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 that's not for you right now. Just hang on. For instance, Caleb, will you hand me that little lunchbox? There, thank you. How many of you have ever had something in the fridge that another member of your family ate that you were saving? Anybody? And maybe it was something very, very special. Maybe that person is sitting next to you right now. It may be something that you thoroughly enjoy, like a piece of cake. Oh, well, yeah. Stillwell's Italian cream. Very, very good cake. Very, very good cake. And if I've got the cake sitting in front of me and nobody else is around me, I've got opportunity. And honestly, if it's just me, I've got overwhelming support. (laughs) And, as we all do, I carry around with me a tool to support whatever I want and I can look at it, and I have opportunity, and I can seize that opportunity. And, 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 and what we tend to do is, is build up these pro and con lists in our mind of how this is a good idea, and how this is a good plan, and how this will make my life better and make me feel better. It will. I know. I've experienced the cake. My mouth is watering. And I would fully consume this in front of every single one of you, knowing full well, Miss Patty's cakes are right over there, and eat every one of those, too and I would not feel guilty at all but I also know that this cake would be far more enjoyable if I waited and enjoyed this at home with my family or maybe after the kids go to bed with my wife I'd enjoy it a lot more then I know that I would enjoy it a lot more then but I have opportunity now and if I ate it now if she wasn't sitting on the front row she would never know and and I could experience it now, even though the better option, the best option would be to wait. I may have opportunity. I may have built up in my mind an argument for overwhelming support, and I have a tool to take care of it. God provided the tool to take care of it. It must be God's will. Mm, man, that icing looks good. I can just kind of have a little a snip of But I know... That that's not what's best. And I know that that's not the best option what God has for me. And I also know that opportunity is not the same thing as obedience. That if God tells me to do something, whether I have an early opportunity or not, I need to wait until God says go. Because if I don't wait on the Lord, then I create my own issues and create my own problems. And if I pro and con a situation to death, And don't wait on the Lord's direction. I've rationalized in my own mind to make it so instead of listening to the voice of the Lord. I'm listening to me instead of Him. Opportunity is not the same thing as obedience. And I cannot tell you how much willpower it's taking me right now to shut this and not even take one little piece of this icing. Man, I did put a little cool pack in this so we can enjoy that later. (laughs) but um, that truth opportunity is not the same as obedience I was reading this passage and I've preached on this passage many times before walking on water and have glossed right over this verse and it never struck me until this time as scripture often does that's why we read it so much it has so much to reveal to us They wanted to make him king. God had promised him a kingdom. God had sent him to establish a kingdom. And they wanted to make him king. Oh, here's opportunity. Make me king. Knowing that's what they're thinking. An army of 5,000. He could have raised a bigger army than that. We know from what he says on the cross, he could have called the legions of angels to come to him. But that was not God's plan. And so he didn't do it. Even though he had opportunity, even though he had overwhelming support, it was not God's plan. And so he pursued the Lord and waited on the Lord. And the disciples were not there when it happened. They were out on the water. The disciples obeyed God's plan, at least for them. For them, God's plan was to get in a boat and cross the sea. God's plan, unbeknownst to them, was to go through the storm. They didn't know the storm was coming, but Jesus did. Jesus sent them into the storm. Jesus sent them into the storm. That'll mess up some of your theology. (laughs) He knew the storm was coming. It was going to be a raging storm. Some of them would be terribly frightened. When he came to them on the water, he knew some of them would be scared that he was going to be there. But he sent them into the midst of that, knowing the fear was coming. The anxiety would rise up within them. But he still sent them out there. They, you know, God's plan must be followed even if it leads us into a storm. Because what we see with the disciples, when Jesus came, he was coming to them. He, he sent them into the midst of the storm and his plan was to come to them. So that meant the disciples were safer in the storm than they would have been on the land with the popularity of the people wanting to make Jesus king. They were safer in the storm I know many of us when we go through a storm in life we don't feel very safe and sometimes it feels like everything collapses all at once this happens in this health thing and this deal and this over here and, and we can't get out from under it and it, it feels like a terrible storm that we're not going to weather this time we've weathered storms in the past but this one just is, is too much we're not going to make it but when Jesus is with us We're always safer in the storm We're always safer in the storm with Jesus Every single time With Jesus we're always safer in the storm The most dangerous place we can ever be Is somewhere God did not tell us to go Even if it feels secure, even if it feels financially stable, even if our career feels like it's going right, even if everything with our family has finally calmed down, everything feels good, but if we're not where God told us to go, it's the most dangerous place on the planet. No matter how good it feels right now, it's always dangerous to step outside of where God has you go. You keep pursuing what he has. It's always safer in the storm with Jesus. Because truth of the matter is, storms come and go. They come and go. Sometimes they come and stay for a while, but at some point they're going to go. And in, we're being honest. People come and go in your life. Seasons, decisions, storms come and go. But you know what Jesus does? Jesus comes and stays. Jesus always comes and stays. Jesus doesn't come and go. Storms come and go. Jesus doesn't come and go. Jesus comes and he stays with you. He comes and he stays no matter how rough the seas get. No matter how you know, dark the outlook appears in the moment. Jesus is still there. He didn't leave you or forsake you. This, this road that you're on did not surprise him. If Jesus said to go, you go. I mean, another one of the Gospels tells us when when they were in the midst of the storm, Peter got out of the boat and walked on water in the storm as well. Sometimes you're going to have to do the impossible, but Jesus is with you to allow you to do it if you have faith enough to do it. Sometimes you need to stay and wait where God has you wait in the midst of the storm. Sometimes he's going to say, take a step of faith and step out in that faith and do it. And you're going to say, that doesn't make any sense, Jesus. (laughs) Shh. That makes no sense whatsoever. So, obviously, because it makes no sense, that cannot be from God. Because God only ever always makes sense to us in our human rational understanding, right? No. (laughs) No. If God always made sense to me, a human being, he would be a human being and I would be smarter than him. But that's not the case, not even in the slightest. God is far superior to any and all of us combined. And so sometimes the decisions he makes and the things that he has us do will not make sense in the moment because we can't see the full picture. Honestly, we can't comprehend the full picture. Even if he showed it to us, it wouldn't make sense to us. But it makes sense to him because it's his kingdom, not ours. It's his plan and not ours. We may have been in the crowd ourselves saying, let's make him king right now. Why wait? Why wait another year or so? Why be crucified? You don't got to be crucified. You don't have to go through the pain. We can just do it right now. We will rise up and we will fight for you, Jesus. But that wasn't God's plan. That would not have paid for one person's sin. That would not have established eternity that we needed established. He had to die. He had to raise from the dead. Even though it made no sense To the people there Which is why all of his disciples ran Scared and hid And locked themselves in a room Because it didn't make any sense But it was God's plan anyway God's plan for your life And he does have a plan for your life For every single one of you Not only did he create you and handcraft you He created and handcrafted a plan Specifically for you in your life We have to listen to him About what direction he desires us to take and we listen to him through scripture and through prayer. Jesus said that uh, his sheep will know his voice, and the only way to know his voice is to spend time with him. Familiarity will, will allow us to hear him and what he speaks. Sometimes, honestly, we do get distracted. I get distracted, and, and, and a voice we may hear or think we hear or a rationalization we make in our mind isn't really God, it's us, but we, we, we think it's God because we want it to be. Because we see opportunity, and we see overwhelming support, and we say, that's got to be God, right there. But God says, no, stay the course. And then the second, the second God says, take a step of faith, we got to take it. He says, jump out of the boat, you jump out of the boat. You don't wait to ask how far, you don't wait to ask how high, you're already out of the boat by the time he finishes the sentence. As soon as God says move, you move. But until he says move, you don't and you wait on Him because He has you where you're at for a reason and a purpose, serving Him faithfully in obedience in whatever capacity, wherever He has planted you, wherever He has planted you. And then when He says, I'm moving you to a new area of my ministry because I have something specific for you to accomplish there, you do that, and you you, you don't wait. You don't wait for further, you know, Uh, uh, you, You don't test him In any capacity Scripture says You shall not put the Lord my God to the test You don't You listen to him, you obey him And you follow him Always, every single time Because we see Jesus did that He obeyed God's direction Not the opportunity of the moment We see with the disciples obeying Jesus, going out into the storm, even though a storm was coming and brewed up and went crazy, and Jesus got into the boat with them. He came and he stayed, and all of a sudden they were at the other side. Jesus always comes and stays. So if you know Jesus today, he has already come to you, and he has stayed with you, and he's there. Even at times when we don't acknowledge that he has come, he is still there. Even at times if we don't specifically hear him, He's still there He's still there whether we listen or not He's still there Even if we ignore Him He's still there He doesn't walk off When, we're, you know, when we, we're irritable He doesn't walk off when we're annoying He doesn't walk off when we're impatient He doesn't walk off when we're unfaithful He stays Always Jesus comes And He stays Even if somebody comes to you and they question whether or not you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is still with you, even if they're not. Even if somebody comes to you and questions the calling God's placed on your life, Jesus is still with you, whether they're with you or not. And so the question you have to come to that we talked about at the beginning is, are you doing it for them or are you doing it for Jesus? Because if you're doing it for Jesus, then you should be obeying Jesus, even if it means walking into a storm. Even if it means staying steadfast in a storm, a storm that lasts a decade and a half, two decades. For Abraham, it was 25 years, two and a half decades. You walk through wherever he has you go because that's where he has you. And he's gifted you to do something in that space that no one else could accomplish but you. Only you can do that. And he, he created you for that purpose even if that means walking through a rough storm, rough seas, difficulty after difficulty that exists because of this fallen world, not because, because God made everything in your life bad, the world is a fallen sinful place and there are bad things here. And as long as we're here, there's gonna be bad. I remember, uh, and my kids have asked me many times, I remember as a kid and my kids have asked me, well, that's not fair. Well, the world's not fair because there's sin here. And nothing will be fair until we are there. Because fair only comes with absolute justice and absolute perfection. And that's only existent in the presence of God. We will know it one day, even if we don't know it now. This world has fallen. This world is sinful. And so that's why we need God's direction and Jesus' guidance and His Spirit speaking into us to guide us through this life, to help us uh, steer through the storm to row through the storm and it may feel like we have rowed for hours and hours and we just aren't making any headway whatsoever but if you're going in the direction God has placed you on then you're right where you need to be storm's raging water's coming over the side everybody is mumbling under their breath abandoned ship but you know Jesus set you on this path and he's not going to leave you alone out there in the middle of the water in the middle of the storm middle of the night He's there with you, and he's staying with you. Let's rely on Jesus. Follow Jesus. And so that's the question we have to ask ourselves is, will I follow Jesus? Maybe you need to follow Jesus for the thousandth time. Maybe you need to follow him for the thousandth time. But you see, the thing about being with Jesus is is he knows the nature of man, humanity. He knows what's in our heart. He knows that we will wander sometimes. And he stays with us anyway. You know, I heard a, a preacher say it this way. You don't have to behave first in order to belong. You don't have to behave to belong. The more you come to know Jesus, the more you desire to follow after him and pattern your life after him. But he comes to us first, just as we are, to embrace us as we are. And he loves us too much to leave us there. So even if you're coming and trying to follow Jesus in in a particular area for the thousandth time, then make that decision to follow Jesus who has come and stayed with you. Follow him, listen to him. Or if you need to come and follow Jesus for the first time, then this is that opportunity. This is the opportunity to believe in Jesus, God's son, who came to this earth, lived a perfect, sinless life, Then died on a cross, because that was God's plan. He died so all of your sins would be forgiven. All of them. Even the ones nobody knows about. Not your spouse, not your kids, not your parents, not your best friend. Just in the back of your mind, you and Satan and God know about that one. But you haven't told anybody. He forgives even that. Unforgiveness and bitterness you've kept within you for years, years already forgiven by him it's already forgiven through his death on the cross and then he rose from the dead so that we can live after we die and that's the gospel story that's the plan of salvation that's how we gain eternal life is we believe that he did that and then once you believe what scripture tells us it's it's as though we're placed in his hand and the hand of Jesus is gripped around us and the hand of God is gripped around the hand of Jesus And I don't know the people you know, but I don't know anybody who's stronger than God. And so no one can pull you out of the hand of God. No one is strong enough, not even you. Once you're there, you're there for all time. Nothing you do tomorrow can undo what Jesus already did for you yesterday. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. Will you believe today? And then will you wait for him and his guidance in your life and whatever he has for the days to come? I'm gonna pray. And uh, the music team's gonna sing and, and play. And you're gonna have an opportunity to make a decision. Will I follow Jesus today? For the first time, and if you wanna follow Jesus for the first time, I wanna talk to you and celebrate with you you can come and, and I'll be down here and, and I'd love to talk to you and pray with you. Uh, if you're watching online, you can do this in the room too if you feel a little you know, weird about coming down the green carpet to the front. We have on our website one of the very first cards, dequeen.church, that's our website, dequeen.church. One of the very first cards says, I made a decision. It says your name, I think it's your email, phone number, and then a little box for you to say what your decision was. And that sends an email right here to my phone. And I will call you today. And I'll talk to you about it and celebrate with you and pray for you. So if you made that decision, fill that out real quick, real quick. And and let's celebrate together the decision God's placing on you to make and follow after him. So make that decision today. Follow Jesus today, first time or the thousandth time, and then wait on him in his direction.